very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And by now you know that to listen to the full interview tonight and all our past shows, all you have to do is go to our website, VeritasRadio.com, click on the subscribe button, choose between three months all the way to two years, find the best plan that works for you, and you'll get your login immediately. You'll have access to hundreds of hours of great information. And if you want to upgrade your life, the same goes for Sanitas Radio. Go to SanitasRadio.com and sample what it has to offer. I guarantee you that just by listening to one program, you'll have a lot, a lot of information that will become priceless. Also, we are on the third season over there, so take a listen. And if you want to get in touch with me or simply want to be a guest on this radio program, I love to hear from everyone. Go to VeritasRadio.com and click on the contact button and choose the right link. And tonight, we take a tour through the new science of the Omniverse, its spiritual and physical dimensions, and its incalculable intelligent civilizations. Tonight's special guest is Alfred Lambert Weber, a veteran of this radio program and the father of exopolitics. His new book is out and is titled The Omniverse, Transdimensional Intelligence, Time Travel, The Afterlife, and The Secret Colony of On Mars. He will share with us the key travel and communication technologies of the omniverse time travel, teleportation, and telepathy. Also, we'll discuss newly disclosed date secrets about these technologies, about the findings of the NASA Mars rover missions, and about a secret colony and life on Mars. And he'll even go beyond that. He'll explain through science how souls are holographic fragments of God and how they help create planets, solar systems, galaxies and universes in the multiverse. Alfred Lambert Weber is a graduate of Yale University and Yale Law School and a former Fulbright scholar. He has taught economics at Yale University and constitutional law at the University of Texas. He is the former general counsel to the New York City Environmental Protection Administration, former director of the 1977 Carter White House Extraterrestrial Communication Study and former NGO delegate to the United Nations. He's the author of Exopolitics, Politics, Government, and Law in the Universe, 
and is the recognized founder of Exopolitics, the science of relations among intelligent civilizations in the multiverse. And he's with us tonight, directly from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. I would like to welcome Mr. Alfred Lamberman Weber. Hello, Alfred, and welcome back to Veritas. Mel, you know, it's a great pleasure to be here. I know that uh, um, it's it's been a while since 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 we've seen each other. I think the last time we saw each other was down at the Iseti Ranch. That's correct. That's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah. We were both speakers down there. That's right. We uh, we had an interview over seven years ago, but we saw each other at the Iseti Ranch. Hello to to our friend James Gillen, and I know he listens to us. Oh, and oh sure. I believe he's in Australia right now. He was just initiated by an Australian tribe, and uh, he has more to say, so we're going to have James back in the near future. But Alfred, you coined the term exopolitics, and I know a lot of our listeners know what that is, but just as a recap, what is exopolitics? Yeah, you know, it's it's very simple. It's... um, It means relations among intelligent civilizations in our universe or in any other universe in our multiverse. One of the things that we discovered uh, and confirmed in writing our new book, The Omniverse, was that there are a a multiplicity of universes in our multiverse, and we were able to track down an estimate of the the actual number of universes in our our multiverse. And... um, what we were able to do with the publication of our book, Exopolitics, first in the year 2000, uh, was to put that on the map as a social science. So it's a social science like anthropology or any other so- social science. And it's a social science that deals with intelligent civilizations in the universe, in the multiverse. Uh, so that's what it is. It's it's very straightforward. Uh, the difficulty with it, and and I and I should add that it was nominated for Word of the Year in 2005, and that's not bad for a word whose first publication was in the year 2000, first public publication. Um, uh, and uh, 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 the difficulty, of course, with it is that we've had what we call the information or truth embargo. And that was roughly ever since um, the summer, June and July of 1952, when you had the overflight of the U.S. Capitol of a number of interdimensional spacecraft uh, uh, that that were published on the front pages of newspapers throughout the world. Uh, the CIA uh, convened the Robertson panel in 1953 and then came down with a worldwide embargo that stated that anything related to uh, UFOs, extraterrestrials, in essence, exopolitics, uh, in government, in science, in uh, education, in uh civic discourse was forbidden and anybody who went forward with that 
was in danger of losing their uh, livelihood. Uh, many people lost their lives or were severely marginalized with um, uh, the, the uh, type of career-destroying warfare that the CIA engages in, what we call COINTELPRO. So uh, uh, that's why the EXO politics has such a, a rough birth. And we now know, uh, because of the testimony of a mutual colleague of ours, who I, who I noticed was a guest on your program in the uh, Christmas Eve of 2015, yeah. Andrew D. Bashago, who's a former U.S. chrononaut, and by the way, folks, I don't mean to interrupt you, but yeah. Alfred, but that was a great, great recap. We wanted to just have a five minute. What happened is, you know, during the holidays, I take a week off. So I put a, a, a an encore of a former show. So I added oh. the one that Andrew and I did many, many years ago. But I wanted to bring Andrew back to just have a five minute conversation. Well, it turned into a 90 minute conversation. It was a great one. He discusses. Andy 2016 campaign. I asked him a lot of questions of what he would be doing as president, what his platform would be, and it's actually turning out to be a great, great conversation. Wonderful. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, he would be uh, he 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 would be the first truly exopolitical president, and I think the first truly exopolitical uh, uh, politician. Uh, or statesmen on the planet, uh, so far as we know, and and he uh, 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 was the witness who came forward. Uh, we we first met in the year two thousand, and uh, he was the one who informed me that when he was part of of the DARPA CIA secret time travel project, Project Pegasus. In 1971, he was shown a copy of my uh, book, ex my future book, Exopolitics, which wouldn't be published until 2005. And the CIA and DARPA had time traveled it back to 1971. And he saw it then in the company of his father and one other person. And they brought it to him in a satchel in a satchel where they, you know, contain top secret time travel information that they bring, bring back for, from the future. So, uh, they, they could have had it for a long time. We don't know how long because I have time travel related contacts with the U S government going back to, uh, 1966 at least. And, and uh, uh, what happened to me is that in that year, in 1971, uh, I was general counsel of the Environmental Protection Administration of the city of New York. And that was the same year that Andrew Bishaga was shown my uh, 2005 book, Exopolitics. And at that time, part of my job at the New York City EPA was to give public speeches on protecting the environment. And I was contacted by this uh, uh, gentleman who asked me, he says, would you like to come and give us a speech? I said, sure. And the day that he showed up, he was very different from all of the other 
people who did. He's a man in a suit, very serious man. And we got in his car, drove about two hours, and we arrived at a nondescript building on the second floor. I went up, and there were about 50 uh, men in suits and ties and very serious people. And uh, they turned out to be what appeared to be 50 CIA and Department of Defense officials. This is in, in 1971, who had been briefed on my future book, Exopolitics, and my future work in exopolitics and mapping the omniverse, who uh, had been briefed on me and on the time travel surveillance that the CIA was doing at that time. So what I'm saying is that the science of exopolitics has been going on behind the scenes for a long time. There we have it. We know till at least 1971. I know till from at least 1966, because I, I believe I had another meeting in 1966 in which I believe I was time travel surveyed by people who had access to my book from, from 2005. And, and so they, it was only until 2000, the year 2000, when I put up the book Exopolitics online for free as a free ebook to introduce, you know, a, a new paradigm into reality that 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 we live in a highly populated and highly organized universe under universal law, which is what I put out. Uh, that the public became aware of this, and and then uh, there was a whole coalescence. Uh, uh, at that time, uh, Stephen Bassett saw it. Uh, I was invited to, uh, uh, you know, there were, became a, uh, a Disclosure Project witness, the Disclosure Project uh, uh, press conference, which I helped organize then took place on May 9th, 2001. Uh, one, I helped uh, uh uh, Dr. Stephen Greer organized that along with my colleagues, uh, Dr. Cal Rosin and Danny Sheehan. When the press release went out, I, I became part of the, uh, uh, organizing the international press and also uh, was going to be the, it was the congressional liaison for, for that. And when the I, I have a copy of it here, when the press re release went out, there were two names at the top of it, Dr. Stephen Greer and Alfred Lamarat, whatever. Wasn't it interesting so, that May 20, uh, 2001, so much traction from that event, and all of a sudden, 9-11 happened and just went to oblivion for a few years? Yeah, yeah, you know, and and we have analysis for, for, for people who are really want to get into the depth of it, we go into the exopolitics of that because it's not in a vacuum uh, at all. Uh, these are what we call different timelines, and 9-11, in essence, hijacked that. And, and uh, you can go to uh, a lot of the work that, that we've done where we show, especially, uh, it turns out, as, as you know, I, I, I have a background as an international lawyer and an international war crimes judge. And 
one of the uh, courts that I'm a judge in is the 9-11 War Crimes Tribunal. In Malaysia, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. There, There's the International Kuala Lumpur War Crimes Tribunal in Malaysia. And then I was also uh, a judge on the 9-11 War Crimes Tribunal in the uh, around 2010, 2012. And what occurred there is that, again, a key whistleblower, Andrew Bishago, came forward, who was also an attorney, and has filed a, a sworn affidavit there. You can go to uh, 911warcrimestribunal.org. Or just go to the nine. Just Google nine eleven war crimes tribunal, and you'll go to the website, and you can read his his affidavit. And that is that <clears throat> the CIA and Department of Defense DARPA times travel in nineteen seventy one had moving images of what happened on nine eleven at the twin towers at the World Trade Center. So that they knew what was going to happen on 2001, 30 years in advance. So, uh, uh, do you think those towers were were built with the knowledge that they would be they would be brought down with whatever technology we can? What you had the X Y Z. We we don't have to discuss how they came down because that's yeah. very controversial to many people. But do you yeah. think they knew exactly? the time frame that these tuning forks, as many people call them, had. Yeah, well, there's a case of the right hand not knowing what the left hand was doing, but there's there there are central figures like the Rockefellers, the Rockefeller brothers and the Rockefeller family uh, that are at the center of it that would have known. Because uh, uh, the if you go back to Project Pegasus and... The 9-11 Tribunal has not issued yet its its final findings. So this is still, you know, as, as you said, there hasn't been a final finding. However, if we go back to the Nixon administration at that time, where um, uh, Henry Kissinger, who was the national security advisor, uh, and their... Um, uh, uh, the same individual who would be uh, the um, the uh, uh, Secretary of Defense on 9-11, Donald H. Rumsfeld, was in 1971 the head of the defense attaché, the Pentagon defense attaché to the Department of Defense to the DARPA time travel program. And he was also a member of Nixon's cabinet. So that uh, all of these individuals would have gotten the information from the technical information from DARPA and CIA that in 1971 went forward in time and got all of the information about what happened on 9-11 that went through Rumsfeld that would have gone to the cabinet of Nixon, that would have gone to Kissinger. And Kissinger was an intimate uh, uh, informant uh, to the Rockefellers who were his patrons. In fact, 
much of the time travel program was carried out in buildings that were on Rockefeller family properties. Wasn't it interesting that Rumsfeld and Cheney were both part of the inner group for Nixon at that time, and then 9-11 came, comes along, and they're still part of the game? Well, I, I think, yeah, I, I think that that's a key question, and I believe that that's all structural. Uh, I, I have some connection time-wise in that, in that part because Richard B. Cheney was a sophomore at Yale when I was a freshman at Yale, and he flunked out his sophomore year. So in a way, and uh, uh, George W. Bush was a few years behind me at Yale. And so I've been tracking the, these guys now for over 40 years. And and um, uh, and they've been tracking me for over 40 years via time travel. So it's like this game. And and it's, it's like this interdimensional game. And, and uh, uh, what occurred is that Richard B. Cheney is like uh, a right-hand man to, to uh, the Rockefellers so that he then, if you follow him, he was present at the time travel briefings. He was present in 1971 when George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush, uh, and he was part of those briefings where George W. Bush was briefed that he would be a future president, and uh, that, and he was briefed as a future Secretary of Defense, and uh, then he became the future vice vice president. And now the information has come out that uh, Richard B. Cheney has also was also has also been the chief executive of the secret Mars Colony Corporation, which is. You know, it's that mixed uh, public-private par partnership where they've been colonizing Mars through the Mars Colony Corporation. That's essentially a front for the black ops and the black capital, namely the Rockefeller Rothschild capital. And they've had their henchman, Cheney, even while he was vice president, also be the CEO of the Mars Colony Corporation that was in charge of running the colonies on Mars, where, where even now uh, they had uh, Marines there that, that are deployed in guarding those colonies. And we have testimony from Laura Eisenhower that she was being, you know, groomed uh, uh, to be taken to the colonists, he chose not to go. So, so, so is Mars almost like a, an implicitly a fifty-first state? Yeah, yeah. Ba ba basically, I think that uh, if you look at it, and 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 I'm very sensitive to this because, as you know, I grew up in Cuba, and if you look at the politics of of this. Uh, there was a great movement around the time of the Spanish-American War in the 1890s. To take Puerto Rico from Spain. Yeah, yeah. They, 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 they took Puerto Rico. Uh, uh, they tried to the take Philippines, Cuba. Cuba. Yeah, Philippines, Cuba, and all of that. And, and that has been the way that the United States has grown, 
has been to absorb. Now, the way that the U.S. is now growing is that it's using its technology. This has been its secret strategy, and this is my my uh, theory as an exopolitician and as an and as an international lawyer. Uh, is that they're using there's they're circumventing the 1967 Outer Space Treaty by uh, uh, attempting to colonize Mars and to make Mars in essence I. I use the term make Mars the 51st state by going out and actively colonizing it. Because once you put the flag on, you start colonizing it, then you can say, oh, well, we're assuming right and title to Mars. And think of all the mineral wealth that you have by colonizing a whole planet. It's much more than, you know, colonizing a country or an island. And so that's, that's what the secret space program is really about. It's about embarking on, you know, the equivalent of the 17th, 18th, and 19th century European imperialism, but extended out into the solar system. And, and uh, so that is the significance of the whistleblowers of Andy Bashago, Laura Eisenhower, and others and you can see how the time travel is now boomeranging against them because uh, Andy Bashago chose to go public as a whistleblower. And he went out and went public and he came to me and he said, Alfred, they have your book going back to 1971. Well, I'm an old civil liberties lawyer. I mean, back in the late 1960s, I was a Wall Street lawyer. But I was also the NYCLU lawyer, uh, what they call a cooperating attorney, where I represented uh, uh, defendants in the Black Panther in the Panther 21 case, where the FBI was trying to set up the Black Panthers for blowing up the Statue of Liberty. There's, you know, there, there was a lot of heavy-duty stuff going on at that mm -hmm. time with the with the with with the Vietnam War and everything. So, uh, and so as soon as Andy told me this, then I went public and started whistleblowing because I suddenly put two and two together and they say, Hey, they took my book back to 1971 and they started time travel surveillance me back in 1971, because suddenly this, uh, this meeting that I had back in 1971 with 50, DOD and CIA officers, you know, I felt like something out of enemy of the state in which Will Smith was. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was just like that because it was Will Smith in that movie is a Washington DC lawyer and somebody puts an NSA secret in his wife's shopping bag. He's out buying a gift for his wife and he, and he gets into this thing where, you know, the NSA is looking down, down at, you, you know, into his life. And, and the exact same thing happened to me where I've been under time travel surveillance for the last 40 years because they've been looking at what me becoming a whistleblower, helping get the word out with Andy and also what they've been doing to me. And then Laura Eisenhower comes out and says, yeah, they tried to get me. And then Michael Ralph came forward and then we got him out. And then uh, Arthur Neumann, and then a lot of the whistleblowers who came out through either Project Pegasus, we 
they came over, you know, Arthur Neumann, we also brought him out. And then uh, uh, Bernard Mendez and Brett Stillings, who were part of the Mars Jump Room with Andy and about 20 other people who have been, all of whom have been named. They're named in my book, The Exopolitics. Arthur Neumann, better known as Henry, Henry Deacon, right? Yeah, yeah. That's that's one of the pseudonyms that Arthur used when he was first going go, going public. So, so we now have multiple witnesses, and this this thing is just out there, and and of course, the the uh, cover up has been going strong now for forty years. They even have a cop show, a popular cop show in in British television called Life on Mars, and, and they do that just to kind of try and hypnotize the popular mind, you know, so that if people start talking about life on Mars, they'll say, oh, you mean that that cop show, right? That or science fiction or just yeah. fictionalize yeah. something. But let me just, let's start dissecting this because I think it's important. You mentioned that Mars could be a colony, could be the 51st day for all we know. But what about the moon? If we were allegedly, and you're, you're a legal scholar, so bear with me when I continue sure. mentioning the word allegedly when I mention NASA here, and I'm sure you know why. If we were allegedly the first ones who planted a flag on the moon, why not claim it as such, a colony or a state? And instead, we have these new NASA forbidden no-go zones. Why kind of jurisdiction... Alfred, and you can give us your legal, from your legal expertise, what kind of jurisdiction does NASA have over any other country that wishes to explore the same locations that we allegedly landed on? Yeah, that's the key question. And let me kind of walk again through the legal thicket there and through the exopolitical thicket, because there are many levels going on on our moon, just like uh, we don't have the straight story as to what the moon is. And I like your use of the word alleged because we don't have the final story of what the moon is. Is right. the moon is, is the moon a celestial body or is the moon a hologram? A, a hologram or is it a satellite? Is it right. a mind control satellite? I mean, there's a lot of theories out there. So, uh, and is the moon actually occupied by another intelligent species that said to the U.S., look, uh, you know, this is not time for your moon program. And that's why the Apollo program stopped. And now we, we find out that there, there are a couple of secret Apollo programs that went forward, Apollo, you know, the certain number of them that actually landed on the far side of the moon. Okay, so uh, with regard to the moon, this is where the law again has broken down, and 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 that's why right now uh, uh, the law I think is and reestablishing universal law, and uh, in our solar system, in our sector of the galaxy, and on our planet is so important. Because we have the Moon Treaty, which only nine persons have signed, nine countries have signed, and not and not the U.S. And the reason for that is that there are many countries which are vying after the Moon, and because the Moon is already occupied. So, 
if we take all of the testimony that exists uh, and it's hard to judge, you know, we, we, we can't say, well, this is definitively what's happening, but some of the testimony that exists now and probably, you know, many of your guests have verified this, but if we take Randy Kramer and many other guests, uh, uh, the moon is used as a jumping off point uh, for uh, in uh, for solar system travel, say to the Mars colonies. In other words, the Mars Jump Room program, which was a smaller exper- experimental program back in the '80s, used direct teleportation from the Earth to Mars. However, when they, in modern times, uh, they've supposedly used in the space secret space program. Uh, many witnesses have come forward that have said that the moon is our intermediate space, our intermediate space station, to which we send uh, spacecraft that then. Uh, take off from the moon to Mars and to space stations within and then beyond the solar system. So that's, so that's number one. Number two, there are other, uh, there are other uh, uh, intelligent species u- using the moon. Number three, there are a lot of people making a lot of noise about the fact of various conflicts that are going on inside the solar system now and of conflicts that have gone on inside the solar system. So we're, from an exopolitical standpoint, we're just trying to make, trying to gain an accurate picture of our solar system's history, which looks like a catastrophe now. I mean, our solar system, it looks like it's the, it's the victim of, great wars and solar system catastrophes in the past. You know, uh, the, the asteroid uh, zone was Tiamat, a planet that was hit, that could have been in a war, that could have been in a, uh, in a, uh, uh, an outside celestial body that, that did that. Um, uh, there was apparently at 9500 BC, uh, some theories say that a fragment of the Vela supernova came in and hit um, Mars that made it an obloid planet like a pumpkin and uh, that damaged part of its surface ecology, but also damaged part of the Earth and that destroyed our great maritime civilization that was called Atlantis, kind of set us back. And we're prior to that, Earth and Mars were a single interplanetary civilization under the rulership of the predecessors of the Egyptian pharaohs. And that's why when you go to Mars, you see it's a pyramidal culture there, the ancient Martian civilization prior to the 9500 BC catastrophe was a pyramidal was a pyramidal civilization, uh, and there are a lot of Egyptian themed 
statuary. You know, you see a lot of pharaohs and a lot of uh, Egyptian theme statuary on Mars from that time. You know, Alfred, when I think of yeah. Mars as the, the, the god of war, then we think of the civilizations that predated the Egyptians. All of a sudden, we start moving the obelisk to the west, to London, to Washington. We see Washington, D.C. Is there a correlation here between Mars and perhaps even Washington, D.C.? And this is why in the history of the United States, we have been at war 93% of our existence as a nation. I, yeah, I think that that's a key a key question. You know, you, you can connect all of those dots you can really connect all of those dots and and it, you know to connect all of those to to connect those particular dots i could make a uh, uh a speculative one and and that is uh, uh that that is a speculation that uh goes that that goes back uh uh in some cases, 95 million years to the occupation of Saturn by a race of giants that then came and occupied Mars. Uh, uh, that is that then there was a war to kick the giants out of uh, Saturn and the rings around Saturn were, were sort of there, there, residences at the time that were built out of glass and that's why you see all these glass fragments now because they were destroyed in a war around saturn and that's why uh you have now the saturn moon matrix which is a mind control matrix with a remnant of that giant civilization that then uh came down to mars and uh, then came down to our moon. So we have a history of warfare in this planet. Uh, There's some people that say that there have been nuclear wars on the surface of Mars uh, uh, and uh, in the past. You know, so we're 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 living in a in a sector of the galaxy and of our in of our universe that's a targeted one. We know for sure that somewhere between 200,000 to 300,000 years ago, we had a great Star Wars-type conflict here that some people call the Lucifer Rebellion, where the leadership of this entire sector of inhabited planets at the governance and even at the spiritual level, at what we call the Omniverse level, defected. And uh, was taken over by manipulatory ETs, and all the manipulatory ETs joined in that uh, at the level of the uh, Draco reptilians, at the level of the Orion Greys, at the level of the Anunnaki, and that's and and uh, that our sector of uh, uh, our planets were were quarantined for the last 200 to 300,000 years and we've been under a, a species of quarantine and that's why uh, this is such a, a difficult sector and a difficult planet that 
we've been in, and that's beginning to come to an end. Uh, so these are some of the some of the local conditions that we've been operating under, uh, and uh, uh, and that have uh, uh, and that are now uh, uh, beginning to come to an end uh, as uh, what we call quote disclosure or the end of the quarantine uh, is coming to an end. And as the occupying Draco Reptilian Orion Gray Alliance, the Anunnaki Alliance is being driven out. Now, the time frame is not totally exact. Uh, and uh, the, the, there are actors in there that include things like uh, sentient predatory artificial intelligence that's not uh, it's not uh, organic. It's it's uh, it's plasma based or machine based, but it too is part of the of the uh, uh, Star Wars conflict in in this part of the galaxy uh, or in this part of the universe. So, uh, uh, but all of this is. It is very optimistic, and what I see, my the book that I was just able to complete and bring out is part of this as well, because it's on the same arc as exopolitics. Exopolitics first brought in, you know, just the plain concept that we live in a highly organized. Uh, highly populated universe and multiverse. And now with the Omniverse book, we're bringing out the next concept. And that is that uh, ever since uh, the Sumerian astronomers in around 3500 BC, they had taken the whole spiritual dimension, the, the intelligent the intelligent civilization of souls, uh, spiritual beings, the afterlife and source, and taken that out of science. And they had tried to make themselves gods, which was the essence of the Lucifer rebellion. And so now, and so that had left the, the canonical science solely in matter. So science and spirituality were used to be married before. And now yeah. we have this, you know, religion on one side, I mean, spirituality, and we have science, which behaves, by the way, very dogmatic and very religious, if you ask me. Very interesting. Very interesting. And and so now what, what we've been able to do because of the science of exopolitics and of parapsychology have now been able to use the scientific method uh, to address the issues of the intelligent civilization of souls, the afterlife, uh, spiritual beings, and source, is that for the first time since the Anunnaki occupation, since uh, the um, Sumerian astronomers 
is that we've been able to develop an equation, uh, a scientific equation proving the existence of the omniverse. And it's a very simple equation. And that is that the omniverse equals uh, all the universes of the multiverse plus the spiritual dimensions. In other words, what's inside the spiritual dimensions are the intelligent community, the intelligent civilization of souls, spiritual beings, and source. And that used to be, that was taken out and that was put in some fuzzy ball that we weren't supposed to know about. And that's why uh, we, we, they invented religion, they invented government, they invented all these guys with funny hats. Probably languages, too, to separate us. Yeah, it, exactly. And now, for the first time, all of this is coming around where, where we're beginning to see that we live in a reality which is a whole, which, which we can account for, which is a matter of science, and in which uh, uh, we are holistically related to the entire thing because each one of us uh, that is a that is a uh, soul entrained human that that is that uh, one of the discoveries is that the universes uh, exist uh, one of the purposes or missions of the universe is to serve as kind of a theme park for souls that are holographic fragments of sorts. <laughs> before you before we go there with the theme parks and the rides, I think you're totally correct. Perhaps our universe is a theme park and planets or solar systems may be the rides. You know, yeah. we, we we come here to experience a roller coaster called planet Earth for for instance. But the the the, the catchy names meta universe, multiverse, megaverse, universe is universe, I'm, I'm sorry, is omniverse the same? What is omniverse? Yeah. Um, omniverse, yeah. What it is, is, is omniverse is the next conceptual step in our evolutionary development and conscious understanding. It goes like this. Universe, multiverse, omniverse. And if we go back to our ordinary history, and by we, I mean we earthly humans. And I always, I, I use the word like double vision. You know, there's like a double, you, you, you always have to think of yourself double you, you know, the, the last letter in my name. That's right, double you. Yes. Yeah, there, there's the, because there, you is a double you. You underneath you is the is the soul that is incarnating in an avatar that is Mel or is Alfred, and that is incarnating inside the avatar of Alfred or Mel, and. Uh, our souls, by the way, can be incarnating in multiple, in any, in in a number of incarnations, 
in different parts of the multiverse now. But if if we go back to the to the original, we there's two different aspects that we always have to think of ourselves as. Number one, a soul that is non-local and that is a holographic fragment of source, meaning that the whole of so the, the, the holographic principle is that the whole is always located in each part of the whole. So it's actually God that is located in that holographic fragment. And that is embedded and incarnating inside an avatar that's a bio-avatar. It's a biological avatar. Homo sapiens, a human in on Earth in a time-space hologram here on Earth. It's in multiple timelines. And we're incarnating inside this, just like in the movie Avatar, where we're having this life on Earth. And the, and the purpose of it is soul development. What we're going to gain out of this is soul development. Because at the end of this, of this earthly life of the bio-avatar, Alfred or Mel or whoever else, your soul is going to uh, uh, let go of the avatar. It's going to teleport back through the interdimensional portal between the time-space hologram of Earth and uh, the interlife or the afterlife and go back to its, you know, resume its 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 uh, existence activities in the interlife. And that's a question I had for you. Do the universal laws of the afterlife apply to other extraterrestrial beings or civilizations, or is it the same all over the universe and we're simply avatars in different forms across the universe in order to experience each specific vibratory frequency or dimension? That's a very good question. And and I would say yes to all of that, i.e., <clears throat> we, we now have replicable empirical evidence that as souls, as non-local souls, we can experience uh, incarnation in avatars as humans here on Earth, as in the human exophenotype, as a variety of exophenotypes, as as uh, uh, you know, avian, as uh, feline, as uh, grays, as reptilian. Uh, there's there's all sorts of exophenotypes that we can experience, and not only that, reincarnation is just one of the tasks that a soul experiences in relation to the created universes. Probably one of the major uh, activities is taking, creating, and and managing and and taking care of the universes and all of the creations inside the universes. We'll, you know, we'll we'll take care of universes. We'll create new planets, new exophenotypes. We'll adjust time. In in them, uh, people will be uh, souls will be deployed as guides to help you know individuals in particular lives and 
you know, come to them in their dreams and advise them. And, you know, so this is really a complex, what we call dimensional ecology. Very, very interesting. Since we're speaking of extraterrestrial beings, I've always wondered, Alfred, if, if and when extraterrestrials land in a large scale, that is, because we, we, we've heard of enough people to know that that's been happening. They may say, take me to your leader. And you may know the name Maslan Othman, a Malaysian astrophysicist who was said to be tasked with coordinating humanity's response if and when ETs make contact. A UN ambassador to extraterrestrials, basically. So if ET lands, they will be directed to Mrs. Othman. She is currently head of the UN's little-known Office of for Outer Space Affairs, UNUS. What do you know about this? Yeah, um, I actually, I know a great deal about it, and I have some opinions about it. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's basically, I think, uh, how exactly can... What is the strategy for the integration of this planet and this sector of, of our universe that has been under quarantine for at least, let's say, between 200,000 and a million years? You know, there, there's some large chunk. And that is still, we still haven't finished completely uh, with the warfare issues and there's still a lot uh, i mean all you have to do is is come and look at this planet and see at the degree of conflict and you see that uh the results of the damage are still you know what is driving life on this planet because as you pointed out we're still in constant warfare our basic product or the basic product of the matrix on this planet is war, disease, crime, and poverty. And it hasn't switched over to a positive future. Now, let's look at Ms. Mazenoffman and the Outer Space Office. Uh, and I first became involved with them uh, with the with the Outer Space Office when I attended Unispace, the Unispace conference in Vienna in, in 1982, uh, after I was a delegate to uh, the, um, the second special session in, on disarmament at the United Nations in New York. And then I went to Vienna, uh, where the Outer Space Office is, and was a delegate to the Unispace conference there. Now, this is, I just want to give the full context uh, to, uh, to the, in responding to your question, because the whole process of what we can call disclosure or uh, uh, what we can call what I call reintegrating Earth into universe society, I think has to be looked at in what we call the dimensional ecology. And so what we're dealing with 
are uh, the upper dimensional ethical civilizations like the Alpha Centaurians, the Palaideans, the Syrians, and others that in fact form uh, what you can call the governance units. They're like a consortium that oversee uh, affairs on this planet in coordination with uh, the uh, the various committees of souls and spiritual beings that are deployed to look at affairs on this planet. In other words, this is how the dimensional ecology of the omniverse works. And with regard to this planet, uh, not all of the upper dimensional extraterrestrial civilizations defaulted and went over to the rebellion. Only specific ones did, like specific civilizations in Orion, in Draco, and perhaps other places, and the Anunnaki, and perhaps other places. And they are the ones that have been driving um, driving war on this planet, driving the Matrix. The Dracos and the Orion Greys were the ones, say, behind World War One, behind World War Two, behind the Nazis, behind the New World Order rollout. Those are really rollouts of a fourth dimension Draco Orion Gray agenda. So uh, there was a a uh, a colleague of ours um, who uh, uh, was a member of NORAD, um, and uh, uh, he was um, uh, he was contacted in 2010. He resigned in uh, 2010, and he um, wrote a book then saying that uh, the, the, uh, uh, the Regional Galactic Governance Council, the upper dimensionals, who are mainly in the fifth density and the sixth density, the Arcturians and the... Um, what is the name of the individual? Uh, yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm trying to. Uh, you know, I always block on his name. Uh, hold on, Jill, let me just get this. Uh, uh, Norad officer Stanley Fulham. Okay. Yeah, and, and so Stanley Fulham predicted that the Regional Galactic Governance Council would overfly New York on October 13, 2010. And he put that on the cover of his book. And I thought, God, this is really crazy because, you know, one thing that you don't do in this field is to put fixed dates right. in, in the third dimension because to translate something from the fifth dimension down to the third d dimension you know, there's a lot of dimensional slippage that can happen. 
And and also dates are, are very relative. I mean, it, it just depends on what, what occurs down here in, in 3D. But what occurred is that Stanley Fulham, who was in Winnipeg, he was in Winnipeg, his job at NORAD was to oversee the deployment of um, jet interceptors, fighter interceptors, whenever there was a UFO uh, interloper into the North American continent airspace. And so when he retired then, he he was contacted by uh, an interdimensional body that identified themselves as a soul group that was in contact with the Regional Galactic Governance Council. Didn't he just die two months after that event of October 13th, 2010? Yeah, he was, he was uh, uh, attacked with a, an advanced bioweapon that gave him uh, a cancer and I, I was, uh, I, I interviewed him twice, and I was the last person to interview mm. him alive. Yeah, he was, he was killed with uh, bioweapons, so that his his information could not get out. Well, the long and short of it was this: the Regional Galactic Governance Council, through his contacts, told him that they were going to appear over New York on October 13th, 2010, and that they had chosen New York because it was a, a sophisticated uh, city and the people were kind of blasé so they wouldn't freak out. And lo and behold, October 13th came around and you know, they're UFO, giant UFOs over yep. New York. I have the videos right in front of me that yeah, same yeah, day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and uh, 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 so we did a whole series of articles on it. And, and I'm sure that you've got the, the, the same thing there. And then, so, you know, people tried to say, oh, it was balloons from a birthday party. You know, the usual try to knock it down. But what we did at, at Exopolitics TV was to bring in, you know, experts uh, who did analysis. And we showed that this, in fact, was a decloaking of the galactic fleet, as predicted. And that, and that occurred on... October 13, 2010, and on the next day, and just to show you how strategic this is, and this is answering your question, and on the next day, on October 14, 2010, is when Ms. Othman had her meeting of the Outer Space Affairs Committee at the UN building in New York, where that had happened just the day before, at which they considered the question of what to do when ETs showed up. Of course, we don't know if in that committee they were cognizant of what was going on. Do you see what I'm saying? Because we have so many different states of consciousness on this planet. We have so many humans that are in so many different bubbles that that you can go inside the UN and uh, 
And I know the people inside the outer space, the Office of Outer Space Affairs. I've been dealing with the UN people for a long time because in the 1980s, I was director of, I was the UN NGO representative of the oldest NGO at the UN, the Communication Coordination Committee for for the UN. Uh, And so I know all the different states of consciousness there. For example, on, on one given day at the UN Outer Space Conference at the uh, uh, at the second special session on disarmament in 1982. I was getting off at a particular floor, and I walked out of the elevator, and there there were the Hopi elders who had come there because of the ancient Hopi prophecy to go to the house of Micah. Uh, so that the gourd of ashes would not explode, na- naming the, the atomic bomb in, mm-hmm. in World War III. So then I, gu- I helped guide them to their meeting. Do, do you see what I'm saying? Yes. So so that there's all and I and I used to go there because I used to spend a lot of time there, and I used to go there and eat there every day at the UN cafeteria because it was cheap. You know what I mean? You, you go in and for five bucks you have a great meal. For not not at the diplomats cafeteria, but at the employees cafeteria, and I used to go there, and I'd be surrounded like by twenty UN guards. In other words, I was targeted because of the time travel surveillance, because I was on the, you know, the CIA would send over signals. Oh, oh Weber's going over to the UN again, because I have been targeted going back to 1971 because of the time travel. You follow me? Absolutely. By the way, we have to take our one and only break to separate both segments. But, you know, whenever I hear the UN headquarters building in New York, I think of John D. Rockefeller, who donated it in 1946. What a great way to snoop on every country. But before I take the break, let me ask you this question, and I'll get the answer on the other side. A few years ago, you attended a conference in Barcelona, Spain, and and Ima Sanchez, a reporter for the La Vanguardia newspaper, a big newspaper, I think the second one there, largest one, was interviewing you. And after the interview, she put down her pen turn off her tape recorder and turn to turn to a, a question, a very specific question. She said, I'll say it in Spanish first, Alfred, ¿cómo funciona el universo? ¿Cuál es la relación entre los extraterrestres y la reencarnación del alma humana? And no worries, folks, I'll translate. She asked Alfred, how does the universe function? What is the relationship between extraterrestrials and the reincarnation of the human Soul, And I'd like to get your answer on the other side. How can people buy the Omniverse? And some of the things we're discussing may seem unrelated, but if it's the Omniverse, it's everywhere. So everything that we're saying here must be directly or indirectly related to the topic. How can people buy the Omniverse, Alfred? Yeah, yeah it's very simple. The, the, the easiest way is just to go on. You can, you can go to exopolitics.com, but just go to Amazon. You can get it either in uh, in ebook format or you can get it in in, in soft uh, soft cover. And uh, when I first checked it, when I came out, it was ranked number one in New Thought. Congratulations! Yeah, 
I went to Inner Traditions today because they are a great source of authors that we interview here, and yours appears very prominently there, so I'm glad to see Alfred Weber back to Veritas. Folks, don't go anywhere. So much more to discuss, and when we have Alfred here, you know that there are no limits. He's very passionate about what he discusses, and we'll get even deeper when we return. This is Mel Fabregas, and you are listening to Veritas. We'll be right back. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important Veritas interview. If you enjoyed it and wish to listen to the rest, go to VeritasRadio.com, click on Members, or subscribe. Or tell someone else who will enjoy this and all our radio programs. If you are listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store, where you can purchase pure organic sulfur, earthing and grounding products, supplements, a USB drive with all our shows, gift certificates, rebounders, fulvic acid, full-body vibration machines, and much more. Now, we'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and I'll see you in the Veritas member section. Enjoy. Enjoy.